As we continue in our series of sermons through the Gospel of Matthew, we'll be this morning again in verses 1 through 12. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Please follow along as I read, beginning in Matthew 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise from these stones, children of Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his weed into the barn. With the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Let's pray together once more. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would come now by your Holy Spirit and through your word. We pray that you would search all of our thoughts within. I pray that all the words I speak would your full approval win. We pray, Father, that we would all be laid bare before your word. We pray that all would hear the call of the kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And may it ready us for the coming of the Lord Jesus again in power and in judgment. Please, Lord, minister to us through the preaching of your word. We pray together in Jesus' name, amen. Three points this morning. Number one, the preaching of John the Baptist. Number two, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And number three, the baptism of Jesus. Consider with me point number one, the preaching of John the Baptist. The call that John gives through his preaching, the summary statement we're given in verse 2, is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Last time we were in this passage together, we identified in that verse two major themes of the preaching of the uh, prophet John, which will be the preaching of Jesus also. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The first word is repent. It is an imperative. It's a call to people to turn from their sins. The call of the kingdom is to turn from sin unto God, to confess your transgressions against His law, and to seek forgiveness in the person of His Son. John tells us that this time to turn from your sins and the time to experience forgiveness is now. The dawn of the Messiah is the dawning 
of redemption and the dawning of judgment. This is the day of salvation. The Christ is come. The kingdom is at hand. Therefore, repent. That is the call of the gospel, to turn from sin unto God. And in the last sermon on this passage, I spent most of the message seeking to explain the biblical idea of repentance, what it means to repent. I'm not going to go over that material again. This morning, I want us to consider that second theme, which is actually the main theme of the preaching of John the Baptist, and that is the announcement of the kingdom of heaven drawing near. He says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and it's that truth, that reality, the dawning of the kingdom of heaven that is to draw out this response in us to repent of our sins. So consider with me uh, that aspect of the preaching of John. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is his announcement. This is his message. Here we have the first reference in Matthew to what is one of the major themes of his gospel, such that Matthew is often simply referred to as the gospel of the kingdom. You remember I said last time, those of you who were with us, uh, this uh, 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 episode with John is like an overture in a symphony. Uh, John is in some way presenting some of the major themes, some of the major motifs that are going to be picked up later in John's gospel. Here we have one of the largest themes in the gospel, that the kingdom of heaven has come. And this reality that the kingdom of heaven is dawning in the coming of Christ, it is first presented to us in the preaching of John the Baptist. The term kingdom is used some 55 times in Matthew's gospel. Uh, The full term, the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, appears roughly 35 times, usually as the kingdom of heaven. I think at four places, Matthew referred to the kingdom of God. Matthew, more than any other gospel, any other book of the Bible, teaches us what the kingdom of heaven is and what it entails. So we're going to have several other occasions, God willing, in this series in the Gospel of Matthew to understand and expound what is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, What are we to understand the kingdom of heaven to be and to involve and to entail? This morning what I'd like to do, though, if we're to understand John's preaching aright, is to introduce two major aspects, fundamental features of what the kingdom of heaven is. And to do this, I have to go outside of our passage. What I'm going to do this morning is summarize much of the material that we'll see later on in the Gospel of Matthew concerning the kingdom. There's lots of things we're going to learn about what the kingdom of heaven is. This morning, I just want to introduce two large ideas, two fundamental realities pertaining to the kingdom of heaven and what it is if we're to understand it aright. So what is the kingdom of heaven? This is John's message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What is the kingdom of heaven? All of the Gospels, especially the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, talk about the kingdom. They'll often refer to it, Mark and Luke at least, as the kingdom of God. Uh, Matthew prefers the term kingdom of heaven. Uh, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God are parallel terms. Uh, they essentially entail exactly the same thing. Uh, the reason Matthew uses the term kingdom of heaven, you'll remember Matthew is the most Jewish of the Gospels. And the Jews had a tradition of using the Lord's name uh, as, as rarely as they could. Uh, they would use uh, euphemisms or substitutes for the name of God. And so they would use the term heaven to reference God's activity. So the kingdom of heaven is that of the kingdom of God, and Matthew's just following that tradition uh, in order to make his writing, I think, more palatable to a Jewish audience. Two realities that we learn about the kingdom of heaven that I want to share this morning. First of all, the kingdom of heaven is inaugurated in the person of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of heaven is inaugurated 
in some ways, even begins in the coming of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, into the world. It's inaugurated in the person of Jesus Christ. So we must all understand this. The coming of Jesus into the world, His incarnation as well as His death, resurrection, and ascension are the beginning, they mark the beginning of a new thing that God is doing. Christ coming into the world is a mark of a new thing that God is doing. The life and work of Jesus represents the dawning of a new age, the dawning of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven comes in Him. We need to be comfortable with saying this, that in the coming of Jesus, God is doing something new. Uh, The Old Testament Scriptures talk about this new thing God was going to do in the new covenant age when the Messiah would come. And it's in the person of Jesus Christ that this new thing is now taking place. This new reality is breaking in upon the world. Now, that doesn't mean that God did not have redemptive purposes prior to the dawn of the kingdom of heaven. That doesn't mean He didn't save anybody prior to Jesus. It doesn't mean Old Testament history and revelation is irrelevant for the Christian. But there's no question that for John the Baptist and for the apostles and for Jesus Christ Himself, they understood God to be inaugurating a new age, a new epoch in the coming of Jesus. Something new is happening. And John is the herald of this coming new age. He's the last prophet. He's the one announcing the shift of the ages. And he calls this shift of the ages the dawning of the kingdom of heaven. The big reality marking this new age is that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is now breaking in upon the world in a new and wholly unprecedented way. The phrase, the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, you might be surprised to know, is not contained in the Old Testament Scriptures. That's a distinctly New Testament phrase, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. You don't have it in the Old Testament. We will notice throughout the gospel, Jesus talks about the kingdom that has come in Him, inaugurated in His person and in His work, as something that is new, uh, something that is being built now, in this new age, now that He has come. He brings the kingdom. He inaugurates the kingdom. He introduces the kingdom. And it is new and it is arriving now precisely because Jesus Himself has come now in human history. The Messiah is here. The Son of God is here. The kingdom is here. Because He has come, the kingdom of heaven is now breaking in upon the world. It is inaugurated in the person of Jesus Christ. So you understand this. It's important we get this from the beginning if we're to understand the kingdom of heaven aright. I remember when I was a kid, we would talk about the kingdom of heaven coming, like repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I would think, oh, that just means like death and eternity is coming soon. So to say the kingdom of heaven is at hand just means, hey, heaven's coming. Death is coming. You're going to meet your maker soon. The kingdom of heaven is coming. That's not the idea here. At least not the main idea. When we read that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it doesn't just mean you're going to die soon and you're going to enter into eternity and you're going to appear before the Lord. No, the idea means a new age has come in Jesus Christ. A new reality is being inaugurated now. The kingdom of heaven is a present tense reality because Jesus Christ has come into the world and because Jesus Christ lives and He has now ushered in, at least in seed form, the kingdom. The kingdom is being inaugurated in the coming of Jesus Christ, and this is the reality that John is announcing. He's the one who's going to prepare the way of the Lord. He's the one who's going to announce the kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is upon you. It's at hand. It's near. The kingdom of heaven is inaugurated in the coming of the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, now the second big reality we need to understand about the kingdom, if we're to think rightly about what John is telling us here. And this is something of a definition of what the kingdom of heaven is. So second big feature, marker, reality 
concerning the kingdom of heaven. First, it's inaugurated in the person of Jesus Christ. Secondly, the kingdom of heaven itself is Christ's royal reign and rule over a spiritual kingdom. The kingdom of heaven itself is Christ's royal reign and rule over a spiritual kingdom. So you understand this, the kingdom is His, and He is the King. That's simple enough, right? Okay, it's His kingdom. He's the king over the kingdom. Okay, but how are we to conceive of his kingdom? All kinds of questions we might ask. I mean, how does it extend? How does it advance? How does one become a member of the kingdom? What does it involve? What are its entailments? By what law will the kingdom be regulated? What does his rule and reign look like? What does it entail? Well, first of all, it's worth pointing out what his kingdom is not. If you were to study Matthew's gospel, and we plan to study Matthew's gospel, all his material, concerning the kingdom and the material of the other gospel writers in Mark and Luke regarding the kingdom, and even John as well, who has a couple of references to the kingdom, you would quickly, uh, quickly discern excuse me, that the kingdom of heaven is not principally spatial, like think of physical space. It's not principally spatial. It's not principally geographical. It's not principally political in the most immediate sense. My kingdom is not of this world, Jesus says to Pilate. If it were, my disciples would be fighting. The kingdom, you understand, fundamentally has a spiritual nature to it. The theologians have observed this throughout the centuries. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is fundamentally a spiritual kingdom, not principally a this-worldly, physical, tangible, geographical space in the world. It's a spiritual kingdom. Jesus is not setting up an earthly kingdom that is advanced through military power and might, or through political subversion, or through cultural hegemony. That is the idea of uh, imposing cultural values and standards uh, uh, authoritatively on a wider body politic or a society. Jesus' kingdom is first and foremost a spiritual reign and rule that admittedly may have physical and concrete implications down the line, but it is not principally spatial, geographical, or political in the obvious physical sense. One thing you'll appreciate as you read the Bible's material on the kingdom is how extraordinarily different it is in comparison to the kingdoms of this world. In fact, one of Jesus' primary teaching mechanisms to help people understand what the kingdom is is to contrast it to how we think about the kingdoms of this world. So it's not like, you've got to get out of the mindset that things about physical, spatial, political, national entities. There's a larger, greater, grander reality that Jesus is speaking about and that John is announcing here. So it's just a completely different concept than, say, if I were to speak of the kingdom of Britannia or the kingdom of France. These types of kingdoms require you to think of a certain nation or geographical region with borders and with a monarchy and with a military. It's all spatial, it's geographical, it's political, it's national, it's economic, right? But the kingdom of Christ is not principally spatial or geographical. It doesn't have national, political borders, military, economic overtones to it. Rather, the kingdom of heaven is dynamic. It is spiritual. It is relational. And as such, Jesus' kingdom, His royal reign and rule, then involves essentially three main things. So you may say, okay, it's not spatial, it's not economic, it's not principally national and political. 
Okay, but then what does that reign and rule look like? What does it involve? What does it entail? And I think if we consider all of the Bible's material on the kingdom, there are three main things that will emerge that are involved in Christ's rule and reign and how it is exercised in the world. The kingdom of heaven is the power of Christ at large in the world to do three things. Number one, to save his people from their sins through regeneration and faith. That's how someone becomes a member of the kingdom. How's the kingdom advanced? Through men and women being saved through regeneration and faith. Secondly, to subdue all of Christ's spiritual enemies. The kingdom involves Christ's power to subdue all of his spiritual enemies. And number three, the kingdom is Christ's power to eventually usher in the new heavens and the new earth at the consummation, at the end of all things. The kingdom of heaven is Christ's reign and rule whereby, number one, he saves his people. Number two, he subdues his spiritual enemies. And number three, he establishes a whole new creation. It is his kingship, his rule, his sovereign reign, principally expressed in these three ways. It's not a place with an address. It's not a kingdom with walls. It is a rule with power in the spiritual realm. Crucial that we understand this. The kingdom of heaven is Christ's rule with power in the spiritual realm. Power to save people from their sins and bring them under the reign of Jesus the Lord. Power to subdue all his spiritual enemies, the devil and all his minions, the kingdom of darkness, the gates of hell, the prince of the power of the air. And it's power to reconcile all things in himself and to one day bring a new heavens and a new earth in the place of the old. This is the essence of what Christ's kingdom is. It is a spiritual reign and rule over the hearts of his people, over his enemies, and its power to bring in and to reconcile a whole new creation. In light of this view of the kingdom, we can now answer some questions. How do you become a member of this kingdom? How do you become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? The answer is by being born again, by repenting of your sins, by following Christ as a disciple. The only way into the kingdom of God, the redemptive rule of God, is through the renunciation of sin and self-righteousness and humble repentance and faith in Christ. Okay, what does life look like in the kingdom of heaven? Life in the kingdom involves Christ's people living according to the king's law from the heart, conforming to his standard of ethics, and working out the principles of the kingdom in the context of one of his churches, which are present-day embassies of this kingdom. As you can think of a local church, it is an embassy of the kingdom of heaven. You know what an embassy is, right? The United States has embassies in foreign lands, right? Well, there, the citizenship of that far-off land is recognized. It is an embassy in foreign territory. Well, you have to understand this. The embassies of the kingdom of heaven in the world today are not nations and governments. You understand that, right? We shouldn't think primarily in terms of nations and governments being the principal expression of the kingdom of heaven today. It's local churches. It's there in local churches that the ethics of the kingdom are followed. It's there in local churches that citizens of the kingdom are introduced and baptized and enter in to the kingdom of heaven. They are embassies of the kingdom of heaven in the here and now. You might ask, how is the kingdom of heaven extended? We talk about advancing the kingdom. We might talk about building the kingdom, extending the kingdom. How is Christ's rule in the world advanced? It is through evangelism and discipleship. How is the kingdom of God advanced in the world? All kinds of answers people are giving to that question. The biblical answer is it is through evangelism and discipleship. It's through the Great Commission. 
The kingdom of God is advanced in the world not through the sword, not through political activism, not through meddling in statecraft and kind of laying hold of the gears and mechanisms of politics, not through social justice, not through asserting some kind of cultural hegemony, but through repentance and faith and the obedience that comes from faith. You might ask, what happens if I don't enter the Lord's kingdom and embrace Jesus as my king? We'll see in a moment that for all those who do not enter his kingdom, who do not accept Jesus the king, they will be thrown outside the kingdom, along with all of the Lord's enemies in hell forever, because the kingdom entails not only the salvation of Christ's people, but the subduing of all his enemies. The king will reign over all, even those who do not acknowledge him as the king. You might ask, when will the kingdom of heaven be established? When's the kingdom going to come? Now, this is a little complex. We're going to see in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus talks about the kingdom as a present tense reality that's taking place now, like the kingdom is here now, and we're to live in light of the reality that the kingdom is here now. And then another passage is he'll speak of the kingdom coming, like at, at the second coming of Christ, at the consummation, at the end of all things. So there's a sense in which the kingdom of heaven is here. We're living in the kingdom now. But there's a sense in which we await its full fulfillment. And the theological language that I think is helpful theologians have come up with is they recognize with the kingdom of heaven, as with so many other things in the Christian faith, there's an already not yet component to it. The kingdom of heaven is already here. It's a reality that is broken in upon the world now, but it has not yet come in its fullness. That language, already not yet, it's kind of the shape of our world today as Christians in some ways. It applies to so many other things. Have we been saved Yes, of course we have. Christ came into the world to save sinners. He saved us. We've been justified by grace. We've been forgiven our sins. We've been saved. But have we been saved? Well, not yet in the fullest sense. There's a final salvation that is coming. You see, already, not yet. We are saved and we await a final salvation. The kingdom has come and we await its full coming at the consummation. Now, there's a lot more that we can say about the kingdom of heaven, but these two principles are enough for now. John is announcing the kingdom of heaven, and that means the kingdom of heaven is inaugurated in the person of Jesus Christ, and the kingdom of heaven itself is Christ's royal reign and rule over a spiritual kingdom. And this kingdom, John tells us, is at hand. It's here, and it requires a response. This is the great announcement John is giving to the people. Now it's come. The kingdom is upon you. And how will you respond? And his call is to repentance. Now, before leaving this point, which admittedly is going to be the longest of the three points this morning, I want to give a little bit of application here. Let me ask you, does this understanding of the kingdom that I've shared, does it check or correct your view of the kingdom at any point? This perspective of the kingdom is Christ's royal reign and rule over a spiritual kingdom. To save his people, to subdue his enemies, to at the second coming usher in a new heavens and a new earth. Does this check your view of the kingdom at any point? There are a couple of things we need to get straightened out in our thinking. Friends, the kingdom of heaven is not meals on wheels or advocating for affordable housing or seeking to eliminate disparities between different socioeconomic groups. Nothing necessarily wrong with those things, but that's not principally how the kingdom is advanced. The kingdom of heaven will not abide the social gospel which has as its end and prize a temporary, this-worldly kind of cultural, socioeconomic renewal. 
of this world, the kind of utopia. That's not bringing the kingdom. Nor will the kingdom abide efforts to inaugurate a kind of Christendom and to establish God's kingdom through human political means. The kingdom will not abide the Christian reconstruction movement or theonomy or post-millennial expectations of whole nations and governments coming under Christian subjugation or efforts by Christians at statecraft. Friends, the kingdom of God is far greater, grander, and more powerful than social justice or a kind of geopolitical Christendom that we usher in through political or even military means. The kingdom of heaven is Christ's dynamic, powerful, spiritual rule over His people. It's His reign over the hearts of men and women who come under His rule through regeneration and faith. It's Christ's victory over spiritual forces that enslave men and women and keep them under spiritual bondage. And it is the coming of a new heaven and new earth that will be consummated when Christ returns again. Now, speaking from a place of pastoral burden, I fear a lot of people in our current climate of social and cultural upheaval and of political polarization and of the increasing marginalization of Christians and their political and cultural capital, I fear a lot of people are becoming discontent with the scriptural means and ends of building the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. There's this sense among some, shouldn't we be making our mark in the political arena? Isn't that building the kingdom of God? Aren't we supposed to be advancing His cause in the world? Shouldn't we be more involved in public life? In, in, in influencing the political sphere? Shouldn't we be seeking to bring the laws of the kingdom upon nations in the world? Isn't that something we're supposed to be doing? Isn't that building the kingdom of God? After all, the kingdom's to advance, right? Jesus has all authority. Aren't we, aren't we to be more involved at that level? And I'll just, speaking candidly, I would say in the last couple of years, since about 2020, um, we as elders have felt more pressure to be political in our public statements. Uh, we've, we've had more pressure exerted on us uh, to instruct people and in how they should think about all sorts of political issues, and we should be asserting ourselves in the public arena, in the political sphere, and that's part of the way, at least, in which we're to bring the kingdom of God or build the kingdom of heaven today. Let me tell you why we intend to steadfastly resist that pressure. Because Jesus did not call his disciples, fundamentally, to overwhelm Rome through Christian politics or to change the world through statecraft. Nor did he commission his disciples to advance a kind of social gospel of political and cultural renewal leading to some kind of this worldly utopia. He called his disciples to preach the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit, and to make disciples, to baptize them, and to teach them to follow Christ in the context of local churches. That, friends, is how the kingdom is built. That's our mission. We came to Winston-Salem six years ago, uh, not principally to see the laws of the Lord embraced at the political level. If that would have happened, we would delight in that. But the work we came to do, the kingdom-building work, the kingdom-advancing work we came to do was to see men and women saved by the power of the gospel, to see men and women brought to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean we're silent on politics. It doesn't mean we don't seek to do good in the public sphere as we have opportunity. It doesn't mean we don't steward our vote well or speak out to the gross sins and errors of our culture, even of particular political parties. But it does mean we as the church are called 
and doing the work of the kingdom, to give ourselves to building Christ's kingdom chiefly through the spread of the gospel, the discipling of the people of God, and the building up of healthy churches. This is how his kingdom is advanced in the world, and it's happening everywhere. As someone said to me recently, you know, the, the culture is really the scorecard of the church. I thought, what a ridiculous statement. And, and what, what a kind of slander to our Chinese brothers and sisters. Where the kingdom of God is advancing in glorious ways. The kingdom of heaven is spreading in places all over the world where you're not seeing the culture or the government especially approve of it. The Lord's kingdom is not of this world. The Lord's building his kingdom all over the place. And he's doing it through the proclamation of the gospel as men and women renounce their sins and are brought into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ the King. And they're coming into local churches who are as embassies of the kingdom of heaven in the here and now. The gospel being spread is, as, as the Lord is subjugating spiritual enemies in the heavenly places. Paul says in Ephesians 6, we do not struggle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in the heavenly places. And that it is there in that arena that Christ is spreading and advancing his kingdom. And John is telling us, he's telling you, you could be a member of this kingdom now through repentance, faith, through turning from sin to God, you can enter this glorious kingdom that has begun and will ultimately prevail. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now look back at the text. John is preaching repentance, the dawning of the kingdom, verse five. We read the response. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Nothing had changed politically or socially in Jerusalem or in Rome. But the kingdom of heaven was being built. It was being advanced as men and women repented and responded to the gospel. Okay, that's point number one, the preaching of John the Baptist. Consider with me secondly and more briefly the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Look again with me at verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. All right, so what's happening here? What are the Pharisees and Sadducees doing? John is apparently achieving some measure of notoriety among the religious elite of Jesus' day. Among them are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Well, who were the Sadducees? Well, the Sadducees were an elite aristocratic group uh, among the Sanhedrin. Uh, many of the priestly class would have been Sadducees. They were the religious aristocracy of Jesus' day, if you will. They were from all the elite families in Israel. And they had certain theological distinctives. Uh, so the Sadducees only identified the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, as valid scripture. They did not embrace subsequent material as legitimate scripture. First five books of the Bible. Uh, they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They did not believe in the eternality of the soul. They did not believe in heaven, if you will. Now, kids, if this helps you, because they didn't believe in heaven, they were sad, you see. Got that? You'll always be able to remember that. Okay? That's, that's not original to me. I can't take credit for that, that lovely help. Uh, they were Sadducees. They were the religious elite of Jesus' day. They had certain theological distinctives, an impaired view of God and his grace and eternity. And they were among the priestly class. There were also the Pharisees who came. 
This is the first time being introduced to these groups in Matthew's gospel. The Pharisees were actually zealous religious laymen uh, who studied the law and devoted themselves to a complex web of oral traditions. Uh, so the scribes we talked about in an earlier message who studied out the law, most of them were Pharisees. The Pharisees were this particular class of religious laymen who were especially zealous about the law, the Mosaic law, uh, the civil law, the judicial law, the ceremonial laws of Moses. And more than that, they gave themselves to a web of oral traditions, kind of oral traditions that grew up around the law, uh, such that the Pharisees themselves were known for kind of setting up hedges around the law. So certain laws that would keep you from even coming close to violating uh, the Mosaic law, the law of the Torah. So they were legalists. They were big on law and um, teaching these laws to the people and imposing these laws upon the people. These are the two main religious groups in Israel, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. John's conflict with them in this passage anticipates Jesus' conflict with them in numbers of places throughout the Gospel of Matthew. Like I said, it's the overture, right? Major themes are being introduced. John has conflict with them, and it presages Jesus' conflict with them later on. We learn in this passage the Pharisees and Sadducees apparently are coming out to see John and to witness his baptism. Now, we don't know exactly what they were doing or what their aim is. Uh, perhaps they themselves wanted to be baptized. Some commentators speculate that. I don't know exactly why they would. Uh, some speculate that though they were wanting to be baptized by John. You know, this is a popular religious trend. Maybe that's what they wanted to do. Uh, others think they came out rather to inspect the work of John. All the people are going out to John. Here's this man in the wilderness, and he's wearing funny clothes, and he's eating locusts, and he's preaching this unusual message, and they come out to inspect his work, uh, perhaps to undermine it, or perhaps to delegitimize it or criticize it in some way. We don't know. But we do know how John responds to them. He detects some kind of hypocrisy in them. John responds with a severe rebuke. He calls them a brood of vipers. Uh, Jesus will actually use that same epithet uh, in, I think, Matthew 23. He will refer to them as a brood of vipers. And then he asks them, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, I think as we read that in English, we may not quite understand the connotations of that question. So I don't think John is saying, as far as I know, I'm the only one preaching this message about fleeing from the wrath to come. So who's copying my message? Who's been plagiarizing my sermons? Where'd you hear that message? I know I've been preaching it out here, but who told you that? I don't think that's what John means. I think the idea is more like this. Who led you to believe that you, the Pharisees and Sadducees, will successfully escape God's wrath? Who gave you that assurance that you can escape God's wrath? Who has stroked your self-assurance that you're right with God through your ethnic heritage, your religious formalism, and through your outward pretensions. You think the wrath to come is not for you. Well, I'm here to tell you, you are not justified in that thought. And then John exposes their hypocrisy. He calls them, too, to repentance and to bear fruits worthy of repentance. Perhaps they presumed that they had no need to repent confident in their position and status, confident in their purported connection to their father Abraham. They believed they had nothing to fear. Well, this certainly fits the words of the Lord in that parable in Luke 19 of the Pharisee and the publican, the Pharisee and the tax collector, both go down to the temple to pray. What does the Pharisee pray? We read, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, 
God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. This is how the Pharisees and Sadducees thought about themselves. After all, they were children of Abraham. They're fine. They're covered. They have nothing to fear. They were children of the promise, or so they thought. But John says no. He says in verse 9, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. In other words, you think you're going to escape God's wrath. This is the reason you stipulate. We come from the bloodline of Abraham. We're children of Abraham. We're the Jews. We have Abraham as our father. Of course we're fine. There's no need for me to repent. I need to flee the wrath of God. Wrath of God. And what does John say? For I tell you, God is able to raise from these stones children for Abraham. I sometimes will ask people uh, uh, in evangelism or in a membership interview that old question, Ray Comfort used to ask, Ray Comfort the evangelist, he would, he would ask people on the street, you know, if you were going to meet God today, if you were to die and to meet God, and he would ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? And people say all kinds of things. Well, the Pharisees and Sadducees probably would have said, we're sons of Abraham. Enough said. That should be our ticket in, right? John saying, no, that answer won't cut it. You must enter the kingdom the same way as everybody else. Now, it's hard for us to appreciate this from our distance culturally and temporally 2,000 years on, but this message of John the Baptist would have represented the most progressive and radical kind of message. John is upending a standard religious assumption held by whole generations of Jews. John is making what would have seemed to them like a novel argument. He's going after the idea that an ethnic attachment to Abraham of itself firmly places someone within the context of God's favor and grace. John is saying one's ethnic connection to Abraham will mean nothing in this new age. It will mean nothing in the kingdom of heaven. It gets you nowhere in this new kingdom that is dawn. Actually, he's anticipating an argument the apostle Paul will make in a number of places. In Galatians 3 and in Romans 4 and in Romans 9, a national, ethnic, or genetic attachment to Abraham gets you nowhere in the kingdom of heaven. You cannot be saved through your Jewishness, through circumcision, through the law of Moses. Jews, just like Gentiles, will be saved through repentance and faith. Jews must enter the kingdom of heaven the same way as everyone else. Physical descendants from Abraham is no escape for you. You cannot enter the kingdom through your heritage or who you know or who your mother and father were. You must genuinely repent and bear fruits worthy of repentance. And then John says, verse 10, even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, personally, I think this verse, verse 10, holds meaning on two planes. There's a sense in which this is true of every individual. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Whoever does not repent, bear fruits worthy of repentance, is not a good tree. He who bears bad fruit is going to be thrown into the fire. I think he's saying there are two types of people in the world. There's two types of people in their response to Jesus. Those that have the root of the matter in them, that is repentance toward God and faith in Christ, they'll bear good fruit. But those who do not repent and don't bear fruits worthy of repentance, they're bad trees. 
And what will the Lord do with bad trees? Even now the axe is laid to the roots, they'll be cut off, and they'll be thrown into the fire. And this becomes cause for each one of us to ask ourselves, am I a good tree or a bad tree? Have I repented of my sins? Am I bearing fruits worthy of repentance? Have I gone to God, turning from sin unto Him? And am I walking in obedience to Him, bearing good fruit? I want to be a good tree. Or have I failed to repent? Or have I made a pretense at repentance while bearing no fruits worthy of repentance? Am I a bad tree? One that the Lord will cut down and throw into the fire. That's one plane of meaning I think we can see here, but I think there's a deeper meaning. I think this is the meaning that would have resonated most in the ears of the Pharisees and Sadducees. I think there's a corporate kind of meaning here. I think John is making a statement to the embodiment of Jewish religion in front of him. Saying, you who pretend that you have roots going back to Abraham, sons of the great promise, I'm telling you, even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Don't think by your identity in the Jewish nation, the ethnic people, you're going to be spared from the wrath of God. Even now, the ax is laid to the root of the trees of those Jews who are not prepared to receive the Lord's Christ. The Christ has come to His people. The prophet has come. How will the Israelite people receive their Christ? If they do not, even now the Lord is ready to cut you off. It's a similar language that we're going to see Paul use in Romans 11, a similar type of illustration of Israel being cut off. It's kind of similar language to language we'll see Jesus use in this gospel. Matthew 8, 11, for example, after the Roman centurion expresses his faith in Jesus, Jesus says, I haven't found this kind of faith in all Israel. Israel's not responding to me the way that the Gentiles are. And he says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What's he saying? This Roman centurion has accepted me. And there's be Gentiles that come from the east and the west, they're going to recline at table with Abraham. Where the sons of the kingdom, those who have, make a pretense of a connection to Abraham, they will be thrown into outer darkness. They'll be kicked out. In Matthew 21, you have the parable of uh, the, the uh, father who sends uh, different prophets to the people. And finally, he sends his son, and they kill him, and they throw him out. And there Jesus says this, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. In Matthew 23, Jesus looks over the city of Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that stones its prophets. How often I would have gathered you, as a mother hen does her chicks. But you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. And don't pretend to say you have Abraham as your father. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and those trees that bear bad fruits, they will be thrown out into the unquenchable fire. Here in Matthew 3, we have the beginning of Matthew exposing the hypocrisy of the religious leaders of Jesus' day. This is the first shot over the bow. Now, 2,000 years on in a room full of Gentiles from among the nations of the world, this may seem irrelevant to us, uh, but surely there is application here for us. Uh, what, what right have you to enter the kingdom of heaven? What makes you think you're going to be with God forever in paradise? What reason would you supply 
one thing we learn here is that it won't be through any connection to the religious community. It won't be through any outward religious formalism. It won't be through who you know or who your dad was or who your mom was or who your pastor was. No one could say on that day, well, don't you know I was a member of Emmanuel Church? Uh, where's Pastor Alex, Pastor Ben, Pastor Mike, Pastor Brad? They'll vouch for me. Well, my, my mother and father, they were good Christians. No, none of those answers will pass muster. The call of the kingdom is to repentance. Uh, say, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. I got nothing. I turn from my sins. I renounce my sin and myself. And I confess my sins to the Lord. I look to Him to be my Savior. That's the kind of answer the Lord will honor, the reality the Lord will honor. You enter the kingdom not through a purported attachment to some ethnic heritage or religious community, but through saving faith and repentance toward God. May all of us look to the Lord in repentance today. Third and final point. We've seen the preaching of John the Baptist, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Thirdly and finally, the baptism of Jesus. By this, I don't mean the occasion when Jesus himself was baptized. We're going to look at that next time, God willing. No, I have in mind the baptism that Jesus himself brings. Look at verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance. And perhaps it should read, I baptize you in water for repentance. And now notice the contrast that John is going to set up between his baptism and the baptism that Jesus brings. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And again, I think it should probably be he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. What's the connection here? The coming of the kingdom means the coming of the Christ, which means the coming of the baptism that the Christ will bring. Now, how should we understand this baptism? That's the question. What does it mean for Jesus to baptize in the Holy Spirit and fire? And most of the commentators recognize this as one of the more difficult statements in the Gospels to interpret. In fact, my favorite commentator in the book of Matthew, R.T. France, doesn't even comment on it. So I'm going to tread where R.T. France is afraid to go. You might look at that statement, it might seem obvious to you what it means, maybe. I think the more you look at it, though, lots of questions emerge. For starters, you might ask, are we looking at one baptism or two? Is it, is it baptism in the Holy Spirit and baptism in fire, or is it one baptism that's like a, a spirit fire baptism? What does it mean to be baptized in the Holy Spirit? Is that something that happens at conversion? Or is that as some Christian groups believe that it's like a second baptism, that you're baptized for repentance and faith, and then later in the Christian life you have a spirit baptism, like a higher life kind of thing, where now you, you live on a greater spiritual plane or something like that. What about the baptism in fire? Is that a positive thing, or is that a negative thing? If it's positive, is it the idea that, that the baptism in fire is like a refiner's fire? So, so we as God's people are baptized in fire and we're purified? That's Don Carson's view. Uh, or is it a negative thing? Is it more the idea of judgment that is going to come upon the wicked? You see the kind of questions that emerge. I'm not going to examine all the various views. I'm just going to tell you what I think we're to understand by these words. The interpretation of this passage that I would propose to you is fairly simple and straightforward. 
And I think best fits the context of what John is saying, and particularly the words that are about to follow in verse 12. I think the basic idea is this. The coming of Christ into the world will elicit two responses and will generate two outcomes for people. So I think the event in view is the coming of Christ, and the effect will be a baptism in the Spirit for some and a baptism in fire for others. The coming of Christ will mean, on the one hand, renewal and regeneration and eternal life for those who are penitent and who respond to Jesus by coming to Him and believing on Him and following Him. God will pour out His Holy Spirit upon them and give to them regeneration and renewal and life forevermore. If you're familiar with Old Testament prophecies about the New Covenant, you will know in passages like Ezekiel 36 and John 31, or excuse me, Jeremiah 31, there's this promise that in the New Covenant, God will pour out His Spirit on all flesh. God's going to do a work of regeneration in people. He's going to remove the heart of stone. He's going to give to them a heart of flesh. There's going to be new life that God is going to give from within. And I think this is basically the idea of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. For some, they will be changed. They will be regenerated. They will be cleansed. They'll be given life through a Holy Spirit baptism. God's Spirit will renew and regenerate and change from within, and men and women will be saved. So the coming of Christ and the baptism He brings will, on the one hand, mean renewal, regeneration, and life through the Holy Spirit for all those who repent and believe and enter His kingdom. But the coming of Christ will produce another reality for those who respond differently. The coming of Christ and the baptism He brings will mean, on the other hand, fire and judgment and wrath for those who reject Him and fail to turn from their sins and believe. Jesus brings a baptism of fire and wrath upon unbelievers and those who proudly reject the Lord's Christ, people like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, people like those who the Apostle John speaks of in John 3. This is the judgment that light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. What is the outcome for such people? It is going to be baptism in fire. The coming of the Lord, the coming of the Christ, the coming of the kingdom will mean baptism unto life through the Holy Spirit for some, baptism in unquenchable fire and judgment and wrath for others who reject the Lord's Christ. This Christ who has come, who is bringing the kingdom, he will baptize in the Holy Spirit those who are being saved. And he will baptize in fire those who stubbornly reject him. And I think this makes the most sense of the next verse, and we'll end here. Verse 12, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. What is a winnowing fork? You know what that is? In an agrarian society, we don't really live in one now. We don't use winnowing forks. A winnowing fork would be like a, a little pole, almost like a broomstick, and it would have prongs on it, looking somewhat like a rake. And the way you would use the winnowing fork, if you were harvesting wheat or grain, you have the stalk of wheat, and what you would do is you'd gather it all, it's there on the threshing floor, and you would take the winnowing fork, and what you would do is you'd scoop it up, and in the face of a strong breeze, ideally, you would throw it into the air, and what would happen is the wind would blow away the chaff to one area, 
lighter, frothier, blow away. And then the wheat and the grain would fall to the floor. We had to separate the wheat and the chaff. The winnowing fork was the instrument through which that separation would take place. And the picture here is what the Lord will do with us is he will separate the wheat from the chaff. And then what he does is he will gather up the wheat into his barn, into his storehouse. It's a wonderful picture. Christians here, could you imagine? me? You're the wheat, the grain in this image. The Lord coming back to gather you up and to bring you into his barn where there's good wine, good bread, and where you'll be safe and whole forever and ever and ever, forever separated from the chaff. But then the farmer, the husbandman, whoever, he comes back to the threshing floor. And it's a different kind of work he's doing now. Now what he's doing is he's going to bundle up the chaff, going to gather it all up, wrap it together, and he's going to throw it into the fire. That's the image. I don't know about you, it seems to me in these verses, judgment and wrath and fire just sort of yawn over the whole passage. And so it's that idea of judgment that I want to leave you with. I was reading this passage this week and I felt just an overwhelming sense. There is a warning here for us. There's a warning. And I thought preaching, one of the functions of preaching, is warning. The Apostle Paul says, him we proclaim, Colossians 1.28, warning everyone. It's the fear of God that causes the apostle to persuade people, knowing the terror of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5. And so I end this message with a sober warning to you all. His winnowing fork is in his hand. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Those who fail to repent and turn from their sins and who reject the Lord's Christ There is for them only the unquenchable fire. It's a horrifying prospect. To have the farmer come back to the threshing floor, to bundle you up, to throw you in the fire, I warn you, flee the wrath to come. I make John's words my own. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, make us ready to meet our Lord. Make us ready to see the King. But please move now in the hearts of rebels to turn, to repent, and to turn unto God, and to embrace the Lord who has come, the Lord who will come again. What a glad prospect for those who turn from sin, confessing their sins, putting their faith and trust in the Savior, to be gathered up by Him to be brought into his barn, to be saved everlastingly so. 
and to live in immortality and paradise in our Father's kingdom forever. May that be the reward of everyone who's here as they look to Christ in repentance. How terrifying to be cast out of the kingdom into outer darkness, to be thrown into unquenchable fire for all the enemies of this Christ. Please, Lord, move in all of our hearts to turn from sin, to embrace the Lord, and to be saved. We pray together in Jesus' name, amen.